Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Fantasy, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. Today, we'll be talking to Greta Kelly about the second half of her Warrior Witches duology, The Seventh Queen. The following review and questions for author Greta assume you've read The Frozen Crown. If not, go get yourself a copy before listening to the podcast so you don't encounter any spoilers. The Frozen Crown ends with a cliffhanger. Princess Askia had traveled to Vishir in the hopes of convincing Emperor Arman of Vishir to help her liberate her own kingdom of Saravesh. Saravesh, like many other countries, fell to the Rovan Empire, ruled by Radovan. Radovan magnanimously offered to marry Askia himself and restore peace to her country. The biggest problem with this offer was that none of his wives survived more than six months. And then, of course, he dealt with dissent by ordering his fire witch to burn down entire towns, along with the inhabitants. By the end of the Frozen Crown, Askia has a promising protector for her besieged country in the person of her husband-to-be, the polygamous but noble and charismatic Emperor Arman. The wedding and consummation of their union is disrupted when Radovan, a powerful witch, kills Arman and his chief wife and kidnaps Askia. In The Seventh Queen, we learn the secret to Radovan's power. He steals the magic from his wives through the means of a magic stone, and he only needs Askia, a rare death witch, to complete his mastery over all forms of magic. Askia learns she has about a month before the stone fastened around her neck drains her completely of her power. In the meantime, the stone prevents her from using her magic and lets Radovan control her. Bereft of her magic and without her guards or sympathetic allies at court, Askia has to rely on her wits to exploit Radovan's weaknesses and make a plan to best him, no matter what it costs her personally. We'll start off with a short reading from Greta and then move on into the questions. In the passage I'm about to read, Askia has been imprisoned by Radovan for a couple weeks now, and he's taken a bit of a shine to our cantankerous heroine and decided to give her a gift. I managed not to frown, but it was a very near thing. You're giving me Gorin? I'm giving you his death, he clarified, his brow furrowing when I didn't reply. Don't you like it? Don't you want his death? for all he's done to Saravesh. The tiny hairs on the back of my neck writhed as I tried to respond both truthfully and in a way that wouldn't shatter the tattered remnants of my soul. Yes, the penalty for his betrayal was always death, I replied, trying and failing to not look at Goran as I spoke. Radovan beamed. And I'm going to see it done, Askia, for you. One of his skeletal hands found my shoulder and I struggled not to recoil. When, I asked, hating the weakness in my voice. The New Year's feast is in five days' time, he replied. I thought it would be the perfect time to begin making amends to you, my love. We will put Saravesh to rights, together. What do you mean, put Saravesh right? Azura shimmered into existence just over Radovan's shoulder. She must have heard my fear echo through the marchlands and come. 
stay calm, Askia. It was always so easy for ghosts to say this to me in the most horrible moments. But despite the inane words of comfort and the anger I still felt toward her, I was glad she was here, glad I wasn't alone. We must begin to rebuild, Radovan replied, like the idea was a novel one, one that only he could have ever thought of. And come spring, we will. We. The word hung between us, a promise dangling from a tree. If Radovan was going to keep to his 30-day schedule, I'd be cold in the ground long before the first month of the new year ended. But the way he was speaking now made it sound like, would you like that? Of course I would, I murmured. And damn me to Lady Night's darkest hell, I wanted to believe him. I wanted to live. Askia, Azura barked my name, panic glancing through her voice. I know, I snapped back. Because it was a lie. Of course it was a lie. All Radovan's promises were lies. But what made them so convincing is that he believed them. It was how he'd turned Goran and how Dober turned Enver. It was what made Radovan so dangerous. He believed everything he said until the moment he changed his mind. And then all bets were off. I've got Greta Kelly on the show now. Hi, Greta. Hi, how are you today? I'm great. How are you this morning? I'm so good. Thank you for having me back on. I'm so excited to talk to you again. Yeah, so we're in the second part of the duology now. And uh, Askia wakes up in a Raven Empire isolated, and she's Radovan's prisoner. At least Radovan thinks she's completely isolated, but she does make some allies that he didn't anticipate. Tell us a little bit about the women she encounters. What's special about these this group of women? Yeah, so uh, when when Radovan, when, excuse me, when Askia wakes up in Rovin, she discovers that she can't use her magic. It's part of the enchanted necklace that Radovan is using to steal her powers. Um, he assumes that because Askia can't use her magic in an active way, that she's also unable to sort of passively sense it, which, of course, is a false assumption to make. Um, while she's wearing the necklace, sure, she can't compel a ghost to do what she wants it to, but she can still see and speak with them. And, of course, this gives her an advantage, um, one that Radovan never expected, because it means that she can see and speak with all six of his dead wives. <laughs> and they are a, a varied, um, at times flawed, but certainly very determined group of women. And Askia convinces them to help her escape Rovin so that she can return with an army and take Radovan down once and for all. And she certainly doesn't have to compel them to speak, at least some of them. <laughs> They're quite right, happy to right. speak. <laughs> <laughs> and so Radovan might be a little surprised by his ex-wives all kind of ganging up on him because he has his own view of who he is and how he treats women and what kind of society he's built. Tell us a little bit about how Radovan thinks of himself. Oh, yes. He just thinks that he is a spitting image of a fair and just ruler. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's one of like the many frustrating things that Askia encounters about Radovan. He's just a 
collection of contradictions. Um, because there's certainly no denying that when he first came to power, his country, Roven, was this poverty-stricken backwater in the, like, frozen wastelands <laughs> of the world. And now they're one of the wealthiest nations on the planet. And it's all because of the steps Radovan took. But, of course, those steps included, you know, taking every single civil liberty and free choice <laughs> and, and crushing it. <laughs> and he, he sort of replaced all of those freedoms with this very rigid class system. And within each of those classes, there's this like surface level of equality where women are allowed ostensibly the same rights as men. They can own businesses and land. They can, they can serve in the army. And, and in fact, the captain of his close guard is a woman and a foreign woman at that. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it's all surface level because if everything was so equal, there would be women in his close circle. There would be women in his cabinet or in his general staff. But there aren't. And in his mind, that just simply means that there must not be any woman who deserves to be there yet. But, you know, hey, maybe someday, kid. (laughs) (laughs) You know, God forbid he look deeper (laughs) and see any problems with the utopia he set up for himself. And, you know, in a lot of ways, he kind of reminds me of those people in the United States who thought that just because we elected a black president that somehow racism no longer exists. Yeah, It's such like a, a childish and oversimplified way of thinking. Um, but it's one that Askia really uses to her advantage because it means that Radovan is just constantly underestimating her. And he has a lot of blind spots. Yeah, <laughs> he sure does. <laughs> well, you were talking about his country being once having been a frozen wasteland, and uh, he does think that he has set up a just and egalitarian society, and it is very far north. So I was wondering if the USSR, the Soviet Union, was somewhat of an inspiration for the empire of Rovin, and if so, would you have an analogy to the Mad Emperor? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, it was certainly a source of inspiration, at least in the very rigid aesthetic of the city of Tolograd, which is where Radovan's stronghold is. Mm -hmm. Um, In college, I actually lived in Germany for a while, and I remember traveling through Eastern Europe and thinking just how jarring it was to have landscapes around you, like, shift from these beautiful, baroque cathedrals and palaces to these, like, depressing, monolithic (laughs) structures that were obviously built during the Soviet era. So I I really wanted to bring in that stifling, almost claustrophobic kind of feel to the atmosphere Mm -hmm. of the book. But um, for Radovan in particular, you know, I didn't base him off of anyone, Although when I was first sketching out his character, I, I read this article somewhere that was saying that there's a really startlingly high percentage of executives on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley who have these like borderline personalities. Like, and by that I mean like slightly psychopathic tendencies or who exhibit signs of malignant narcissism. Mm-hmm. And I remember laughing to myself and thinking, oh yeah, sure, that makes sense. And then thinking, wait a minute, what exactly is a malignant narcissist? <laughs> and so I looked it up. And it's someone who um, exhibits a combination of internal fragility, aggression, and a general suspiciousness of those around them. And they are known for being very manipulative. And their total lack of empathy means that they'll do whatever they have to to get what they want, but also to protect and maintain the image of themselves that they show the world. And I read that and I'm like, oh, 
this is Radovan. I found him. That is Radovan to the hilt. <laughs> he is internally fragile. He actually wants Askia to like him, even though he's planning oh, yeah. on killing her just like his other wives, but he still wants her to like him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, desperately. It's such like a, it was an interesting contradiction to me, but, you know, I, it's something that I thought made him seem human. I didn't mm-hmm. want him to seem like this, godlike figure i wanted him to have flaws and that certainly is a very human flaw for for a villain to have (laughs) and he is a villain what is his cruelest form of torture yeah so that's um it's something one of the the dead queens freda says to ask you on her first night in tolagrad that hope is radovan's cruelest form of torture and Freyda says this because one of the other dead queens is claiming that Radovan could be charmed or manipulated into letting Askia live longer than is strictly necessary to steal her magic. And to some extent, that is true. Several of the queens did manage to delay their deaths, but only delay them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've kind of talked about that Radovan sees himself as this, like, savior of his, of his people, the shining knight in an old fairy tale. And he claims that he doesn't want to kill these women, but that he has to do it for the sake of his country. But even in his twisted mind, it's hard for those two realities to kind of coexist. (laughs) And so he compensates (laughs) by giving these women the illusion of freedom. I mean, they're not free, obviously, but he gives them beautiful dresses and this very lavishly appointed room. And he allows them to wander about and mingle with his court. And like you said, he he gets to know them because he so desperately wants to be liked, even by the women that he's about to kill. And it's this dance that just happens over and over again. And so some of the wives very reasonably fall into this trap of thinking, okay, if I just do the right thing, if I say the right thing, if I just play the game well enough, maybe he'll let me live. And it works. And that's part about what makes Radovan so dangerous is that he can be convinced. And he never really lies to Askia. He's always open and honest with her, but she just knows in her gut that she can't believe him mm-hmm. because she just, you know, you sense that the truth as, as the amorphous as that truth that exists in his mind is, it can change on a dime. So you can't ever trust the hope that he's offering because he'll always rip it away at the last second. And I think he doesn't even know he's going to do it himself. He just kind of reacts to yeah, things. He's- yeah, yeah, he's not always the most self-aware of people, <laughs> which is funny for someone as old as he is. You'd think he'd have so much time for <laughs> introspection, but that's probably something a personality like that is afraid of doing. Is well, he's too busy. their actions too deeply. <laughs> he's too busy building up Robin's classes, and there are mm-hmm. clear class distinctions, as you said. They're also present within the palace itself. Uh, for example, there are the military personnel and the nobility. Are there any tensions mm-hmm. between the two factions, and why would that be important if there is? Oh, yes. there's Yeah, there's an extreme amount of tension between the military and the noble class. Um, Rovin is a war machine, so it's not surprising that the military has a powerful presence. But I think... Um, Radovan definitely favors his military so much more than the nobility. And I think part of the reason that that is, is that there's very clear lines of command intrinsic in a military. Mm -hmm. And for someone with 
an absolute need for control like Radovan, there has to be something comforting about that kind of rigid organizational structure. And I think the opposite is almost true of the nobility. I mean, sure, there are lines of hierarchy involved, but politics and ambition are murky waters to wade through. I mean, you can you can command a person's actions, yes, but it's far far excuse me <laughs> far far harder to command a person's thoughts or words. So Radovan is very suspicious of his noble class to the point where he doesn't even allow them to leave the city without special dispensation. And his nobles, of course, know that he does not trust them and that he despises them, but he needs them um, because even he has limits to what he can accomplish. And at this moment that the book is happening, he's focused on conquest and wars require money and food and supplies. And it's up to his nobility to produce that for him. So they know that they're needed now, but they also know that the writing is on the wall. And Askia senses this right away. And she sees that, you know, while in most autocratic regimes, rebellion would usually begin among the lower classes, here in Rovin, she sees that rebellion could very well begin with the nobles who surround her. And all they really need is a little push in the right direction. <laughs> like Rovin doing something, uh, Radovan doing something really shocking that we won't, we won't say what it is, but I think you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that didn't help us cause any. <laughs> no, not even a little. <laughs> well, before Askia was spirited away to Rovin, um, she almost got married, or perhaps the wedding took place, but unfortunately for me, it didn't get consummated. She <laughs> she was going to uh, marry the powerful, well-built, and charming Emperor Armand, uh, but he's dead now. Is there any romance in this book? <laughs> oh, of course there is. You know, I love a romantic subplot. <laughs> um in The Frozen Crown, one of the complicating factors in Askia's decision to marry Armand was the fact that she did have this very intense sort of connection with Ilya, the captain of her guard. And in that first book, they both sort of agreed to put their duties first. But The Frozen Crown ended the way that it ended. <laughs> and here in The Seventh Queen, everything is different. Um, Askia's only got 30 days to live, so Ilya is going to do everything he can to save her. He just, you know, has to figure out how to travel halfway around the world mm -hmm. and penetrate behind enemy lines, <laughs> the very heart of Robin, to do so. So he's got his work cut out for him. <laughs> but he has hidden talents. Yes, he does. He's got <laughs> an ace up his sleeve, we'll say. <laughs> yeah, we'll say that. So Radovan has uh, children, more or less, stepchildren. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, what role do those sons have for Askia? Oh, yes, the, the two saddest boys to ever live. <laughs> you could describe them like that. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, like you kind of mentioned, Radovan really only has one child that's been formally acknowledged, at least, and that would be Gethin. Um, Gethin was born to Radovan and his first wife, Katarzyna, who were married for many years before Radovan kind of took this turn. And um, Gethin was sort of the excuse that Radovan used to go dark, we'll say, um, mm -hmm. because he is mentally disabled and just he wouldn't have been fit to take over her leadership of Robin. 
And so Radovan decided that he needed to become this immortal being. And I say this all in, in air quotes because there was always going to be a reason that Radovan started stealing magic and conquering. Uh, Gethin was just a convenient excuse. Mm-hmm. And to me, Zosha's existence really proves that. Um, Radovan's second wife, Regatta, was pregnant when she was abducted by him. And instead of killing her in 30 days, he kind of let her live for like seven years, this really weird pantomime of family life. So she gave birth to Zosha while she was in prison. Um, and they kind of just played house. And, and Radovan raised this child, but he never officially adopted Zosha. And, of course, in the end, he ends up killing Regatta. And so Zosha's left living this strange, like, no-man's land sort of existence. Because on the one hand, he's, he's lived there his whole life. He's been raised and sheltered by the most powerful man on the planet. But that man did murder his mom. <laughs> yes. And <laughs> he's got no friends because, of course, the nobility in Rovin don't trust him and his mother's people don't trust him. So he's, he's a man of the country. And uh, Askia sees this right away. And, and she feels a great amount of pity for both Gethin and Zosha. But her, her training in Bashir has given her a bit of a ruthless edge. So while she wants to protect Gethin, she definitely sees Zosha as a tool, as someone she might be able to bend into helping her. Um, but it's it's certainly not an, an easy alliance. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so witches have a hard time with it in your novels. There are the Sharis, Shazir, sorry, religious zealots mm-hmm. in Vishir. They're determined to totally eradicate witches. Radaman doesn't want to eradicate them. He just wants to drain them to useless husks so he can gather all their yeah. power. <laughs> But uh, those poor witches, uh, are they all just victims? Are they all admirable? Oh, certainly not. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think if there's any kind of unifying theme in these books, it's about how power can be used both for good and bad, mm-hmm. whether that's physical power, political power, or, or magical power, like we're talking about with the witches. And it, it didn't make sense for me to have a world in which magic exists and yet have all the magic users be good and decent people. Um, you know, bad people exist. That's just reality. <laughs> right. And so when I was um, kind of coming up with the history of Rovin, I realized that after so long and so much expansion, I, I mean, at some point you're going to run out of middle management. You're going to need <laughs> to take people in <laughs> from those conquered lands and incorporate them into your kingdom, basically. And I started thinking about why those people might be swayed to Radovan's cause. And Kajar really became that argument. Um, Kajar was one of the northern kingdoms that fell to Radovan. And it was ruled kind of by the polar opposite of the Shazir. It was ruled by a theocratic sect of witches who believed that it was their God-given right to rule and that non-magical people were no better than animals. Mm-hmm. Um, terrible, yeah, terrible place for normal people to live in. And many, many people benefited from Kajar falling, including the character of Caden, who was Radovan's guard captain. And I love her character because she and Askia, they're so alike in so many <laughs> ways. They've both been formed and scarred by loss and struggle and by loyalty to a cause. And it was really just the luck of fate that put them at odds with one another. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for me, it just all comes back to that question of power and the corrupting allure 
of placing absolute power in the hands of a few people or in the hands of one person. And I don't think that that's something anyone is entirely immune to, um, including Askia. That was an interesting question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it is solved by the end of the book, but we'll leave that open for people (laughs) encouraged them to pick it up and read it. (laughs) So now that you've finished that, what are you working on these days? Well, there is um, something else that I, of course, cannot really talk about yet, but hopefully an announcement will come out soon. Um, and other than that, you know, I'm just on Instagram. I've been doing um, author interviews on Instagram Live. So if anyone's interested in checking out, I uh, I especially do interviews with a lot of new authors who I, I've met over my debut year. So if you're interested in the new authors who came out with sci-fi fantasy over the past year, you should head over to my Instagram and check it out. How how does one find you on Instagram, just with your name? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, Greta K. Kelly is where I am on Instagram, also on Twitter, but I'm I'm more likely on Instagram these days. Okay, well, thanks so much for making time to chat with me today. Thank you. It's absolutely awesome being here. I love it. <laughs> thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to me today on the New Books Network in Fantasy. I've been talking to Greta Kelly about the conclusion of her warrior witch duology, The Seventh Queen. Join me in December when I talk to Rin Chupeco about their new novel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts and more, at Gabrielle Author, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E-A-U-T-H-O-R. Till the next time.